I love being spontaneous, and I love uh, participation. So uh, I'm going to just randomly pick somebody to come up and read our scripture verses this morning. So, Nigel, would you want to come on up? Yeah, Nigel, everybody. Come on, Nigel. Uh, I'm... Nigel, this is my way of trying to say thank you for you and Jody giving me uh, cookie dough and let me put on five pounds this past week. Uh, I had a moment of great enthusiasm when I opened up the refrigerator and Jody had given me some cookie dough. I just just, just eating cookie dough like 1130 at night. It was amazing. Um, so thank you guys. So that was a great gift. Uh, okay, Romans 12, Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8 it will be our text uh, this morning and Nigel will read it for us. Yeah. Do you need glasses or is that that's okay? Sorry. I'm giving my best. <laughs> for by grace given to me, sorry, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we though many form one body and each member member belongs to all of them we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us if your gift is prophesying then prophesy in accordance with your faith if it is serving then serve if it is teaching then teach if it is to encourage then give encouragement if it is giving then give generously if it is to lead do it diligently if it is to show mercy do it cheerfully Thanks. Thanks, Nigel. The word of the Lord. Cheers to you. So uh, this morning, as we heard in our text, I'm just move this down a little bit. Uh, This morning, what we heard in our text is this beautiful vision of uniquely gifted people who are also one, who are united. And what I hope to do this morning is as we leave, that you will feel more secure in who you are and how God has gifted you uniquely and that you aren't alone, but you are also intimately wrapped in a community that receives your gifts, and you're able to use those gifts for God's kingdom and for the benefit of each other. So that's what I hope to do this morning. Uh, and we won't be going through it line by line, but I'm going to just uh, try something different this morning as a way just to kind of keep that vision in mind, though. So I don't know if you guys like BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed's my kind of news of choice. I'm always drawn to, like, top 15 actors from the 90s. Where are they now, you know? Macaulay Culkin, what are you doing, you know? Like, I'm a huge Home Alone fan. So, uh, you know, it's like BuzzFeed's kind of like, it always catches my attention. So um, I'm going to be, we'll be doing the top seven things uh, in in my mind and on your outline where you can follow along. It says uh, seven things for competition before connection equals divided and rejected, and then uh, top seven things for connection before competition equals unified and accepted. And just to give some context again, we're in a series on enjoy. Enjoy is one of our core values as a River Church, and James kicked us off in this series last week. Uh, We'll be going for nine weeks in parallels with grounded groups, so we can not only just think about it and listen about enjoying, but we actually can practice enjoying uh, our relationships with each other in grounded groups, and this morning, of course. Um, But uh, last week, James talked about the purpose of life and kind of kicked us off. And basically what he said, 45 minutes down to 10 seconds, love God and love others. (laughs) Enjoy one another. And it was such a beautiful, beautiful sermon uh, to start us off. And I really hope to add my voice to that and continue uh, in that vein. However, as I've been thinking, I say, and what our passage, I think, shows is that we are united together. We are uniquely gifted and we're part of one body. 
However, you don't have to live life very long to know that you don't always feel united with people and you don't always feel like you're uniquely gifted. Um, isn't it crazy sometimes even the person you vow to uh, till death do you part, you're like, I don't know if I ever want to spend this day with you right now. You know, that doesn't happen with me and Tara ever. But I mean, for you guys, that might happen. Uh, but no, I mean, so it's like, what is this? What is this force, you know, in the world that can drive us towards division and leave us separated? And so that's what I kind of want to get at first before looking at the other, I think, force in the world, uh, which is the kingdom of God um, and that builds unity and our sense of belonging together. And so to kind of start us off, I want to tell you a story. Uh, It's a very cool story, I think. And so once there was this little boy and he grew up in the best city in America, let's call it El Segundo, and uh, it was the best public school system one could ever desire. Uh, this little boy graduated high school with people who he went to kindergarten with. Uh, he had teachers who he would visit years after he was in their classroom. And for this little boy, I mean, you couldn't think of a better experience growing up in a better school environment to be raised and to uh, think about education. Uh, Also, there was then a little girl who grew up with an equally amazing childhood, but a very different schooling experience. In fact, her schooling experience started in third grade in the public school system where she completed her third grade math book in one month, and she was ready to go to her next math fourth grade, but the teacher said, no, you're in third grade, you can't go on to fourth grade math. So because of the lack of support, that she was receiving, her mother pulled her out and homeschooled her, where in the next year, that next year, this young girl completed the next three levels of math. She's a very gifted, smart person. And so for the next eight years, this young girl was homeschooled. And for her, it was the most amazing experience you could ever want. And homeschool is like the best educational environment on the planet. Well, as fate would have it, these two kids fell in love, and got married. And if you might guess, the little boy is me, and the girl is Tara. I know, I know what you're thinking. How could Tara be homeschooled? Yes. Or you might be thinking, yeah, Tara's so smart. (laughs) She is. Uh, How'd she marry Matt? No, um, (laughs) but uh, if there's any hope for the world, it can be found in the fact and the reality that a public school kid and a homeschool girl married each other, right? There is hope for this world if that can happen. But in all reality, all kidding aside, uh, when you have, when you're raised in an environment with such different kind of worldview, uh, such a different kind of understanding, um, often there can be differences. And so Tara and I's first fight, I'm not kidding, before we're married, our first fight is how are we going to raise kids? Are we going to raise kids in public school system or homeschool? I'm like, well, of course they're going to public school. I mean, they got to play sports, and it's the most amazing thing ever. She's like, no, no, we got to homeschool. You know, it, that's the way you got, kids can accelerate. You know, you got that. So we had this massive fight. We didn't even know we were going to get married at that point. We were like, I don't know if we can do this thing. You know, it's so different. Um, but I think this morning, our, what I want to kind of dive into is the reality that uh, there are often, there are times in our life where we find it very hard to enjoy one another because we live in a divided world. And so let's jump in here to the BuzzFeed's top seven, or Matt Engel's top seven uh, reasons why I think that there's a force in the world that prevents us from really enjoying each other. So, number one, 
Um, oh, and by the way, just a quick side note. I think it ultimately has to do with order, the way we order our life. And what you'll see here in your outline is that uh, it's not competition or connection. It's about ordering. It's about what we put first. So let's start with what I think, though, when competition becomes the center or the way in which kind of it drives our, our life, it leads to us ultimately being divided and rejected. So here's top seven things of why this is, I think. Number one, competition magnifies differences and leads to division. Competition magnifies differences and leads to division. So there's this great study uh, from social science scientists did in the UK on, uh, on this favorite soccer team called Manchester United. If you guys know Man U, they're like the 49ers of soccer in the UK. Uh, I'm a 49er fan, so bad week last week, but it's okay. We got there. So anyway, so they, they tested to see, we want to see what's going to happen if people can actually help others uh, if they start writing about like what they love about their team. So the study goes like this. They had people, Man U, Chester United, talk about and write down why they love Man U. What are the things you love about your team, right? So they're writing, writing, writing. And then they moved them to this other, other environment. And as they're walking down the environment, they had somebody stage who would be running, trip, and fall, and break their leg, basically, right? Act like it. And they wanted to see, would they go over and help this person? Well, what they found was when the person was wearing a Manchester United jersey, 92% of the people would go over and help them. Um, what about the other 8%, by the way? But, yeah. <laughs> but 92% of people went over and helped this person in agony, right, uh, because they were wearing a Manchester United shirt. Guess how many people went over when the person was wearing a Liverpool shirt, which is their arch rival? 30%. 30% of people only went over and helped this person who's like screaming, ah, my leg, you know, because they were wearing the enemy's jersey, you know. By the way, that's lower than if the person was wearing just a white shirt. It was 33% if it was just a white shirt. Um, So it just shows you that when when you focus on the differences uh, of what you don't have in common, right, it it leads to division. All right, number two, uh, competition magnifies our self-serving interest. Uh, Competition magnifies our self-serving interest. Uh, there's a great story, Matthew chapter 20, when Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem, and uh, James and John, who are, part, or who are Jesus' disciples, uh, get their mother. Uh, this, uh, it's a good move by a son to always get your mother to ask for you, by the way. Uh, so they had to get their mother to go ask Jesus this question of, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, let us sit at your right hand and your left hand. And Jesus goes, do you know what you're asking? They're like, yeah, we know what we're asking. And ultimately, he's like, no, you don't know what you're asking. But the point is that they had, there was this opportunity to elevate themselves above the other disciples, right? They're all in a pack together. And finally, it's like, hey, when Jesus enters his kingdom, they're coming in to, uh, this is our chance to sit the right hand and the left hand. What places of honor are we going to be? So let's do it. Let's take this opportunity and go with it. Uh, and in doing so, they end up dividing themselves from the other ten. In fact, the text says that the other ten, when they heard about this, they were indignant about the fact that these two had chosen to ask this question to Jesus, thinking like, you guys, what are you doing? Right? You self-serving sons of Zebedee? You know? Yeah. That's the other version that was edited out. Um, okay. Um, but also, I think about my family. Uh, we, have, we play games. If you guys like guard games, there's a great game called Wizard. We want to play the game Wizard. And uh, my family, the way we play games, we, we're very relational. We care for each other. So oftentimes, even if somebody might, could, could really dominate and win, they'll hold back a little bit because they want other people to experience and enjoy the game. Well, one time we were on a trip in Israel for my college graduation with a pastor who was a mentor in my life. 
And he didn't really quite understand our family values and ethics of, like, not just dominating, right, self-serving interests, but making sure everyone enjoys the game. I mean, we're in the Holy Land, people. I mean, walking where Jesus walked, right? I mean, you can't get better than this. Let's just say we need, like, emergency therapy after this game because, as it turns out, my pastor was like, oh, I'm winning this game. And he drops down a card. It crushes my sister, who's like, why'd you have to do that? You didn't have to do that. You could have waited and played that card. You know, I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like, what's going on here, you know? And uh, the point was, he was all about himself. He's like, I'm going to win, you know? And he's driving home at this, and my sister's, like, crushed by it because she just wanted to connect and enjoy the point is, again, self-serving interests can often leave us very divided, right? Even in a silly game like Wizard. Um, yet here we are. Okay, point number three. Uh, competition magnifies a scarcity mindset. Competition magnifies a scarcity mindset. I'm interested, uh, when I look at the story of the fall and Adam and Eve in the garden, here they are fully made in the image of God. I mean, you can't get better than the Garden of Eden, right? It's perfect. Yet what was interesting is when the, when the, the tempter or the adversary, the serpent, comes to her, he says, did God really say that? Did God really say that you shouldn't eat of that fruit of the tree? And when you really then look at the next question, it's like, well, when you eat of it, you will become like God. And that, that quick little turn of you'll become like God makes her feel less. She comes to a scarcity mindset of, oh, I'm actually deficient. I'm actually not as full as I thought I was. I'm lacking something now. And out of that mindset of, no, God actually hasn't given me everything that I need or desire, I reach out and take. That little subtle shift, that scarcity mindset is so pervasive, and I think competition drives it. And I, hear, and, uh, I love what Henry Nouwen says in his book, The Life of the Beloved. He says that self-rejection is the great enemy to our spiritual life. That self-rejection is a great enemy to the spiritual life. And isn't that true? I mean, we are made in the image of God. We have the imago Dei, is the great Latin word, the imago Dei in us. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus and have been baptized into his new life, we're created whole in him. Yet so many times, don't we just feel like in life we're just deficient, that we're not enough, that we're lacking If only we could be better, if only we could look a certain way, if only we could be in something different, have another career. And we see the way in which that scarcity mindset warps our thinking from understanding that we are fully alive in God to I'm less, I'm less than. Okay, number four, competition magnifies fear of the other. Competition magnifies fear of the other. So last November is 25 years from Prop 187 passed in California. And Prop 187 was an immigration bill that went through the state of California. And uh, all politics aside, my, um, from my experience as a 10-year-old boy, uh, yes, right, I'm 35, a 10-year-old boy, uh, was the ad campaigns really drove home the concept of fear. It was fear the other. Imagine what's going to happen if, you know, if, if mass immigration comes in. And I just remember thinking, oh, my gosh, like, this is really scary. Like, we got, you know, we got to stop this. Or it just it elicits the fear of the unknown, and, and it just keeps driving that. And, you know, nothing's really changed in politics, right, today, right? I mean, just politicians just keep hammering on the fear. And I just sit back and, like, what good is that actually serving us? And as people of God, we follow Jesus who gives us the gospel of hope. 
We can, you know, regardless of, you know, political spectrums, all that, and we should have good conversations. But ultimately, as people of God, we declare hope, not fear. Just as the song we sang about, we are no longer slaves to fear. We are children of God. And so in that place, then we look out into our world and say, how do we make our world better? Let's operate out of hope rather than fear. But what we see is often competition drives and magnifies the fear of the other. And so that ends up dividing us and rejecting rather than unifying. Okay, number five. Competition magnifies our need for control. Competition magnifies our need for control. I love the story in Exodus of the Hebrews who are freed from slavery, right? And yet, chapter 15 is a beautiful text. They sing worship to God. God, you are great. We love you. Magnify you. You've delivered us. Chapter 16 they're entering the desert, and they're like, oh, where are we going to get our food from now? Because Pharaoh used to provide us food. We had control of our own food, and now we're in the desert, and there's not really food in the desert. And so literally they say, let us return to Egypt, Moses. Why did, you should have just let us, us die out here. Let us go back to Egypt so we can sit by our pots and have our fill of meat and of bread. That's what it literally says that. And you're like, What? There's just this drive for control that competition often plays on rather than the place of surrendering to God and allowing God's provision to come uh, to us. And so we see this in the story of the Israelites of just complaining to God. And it's, it's, it's crazy to think about, right? Because you're like, God just freed you from slavery. Yet, how could you, like, how could you have anything but faith in him? But yet we see, I think, a human condition is always one. No matter how many times God delivers and provides for us, we always are grasping for more control of our life to give us some sense of, of um, security. But ultimately, I think that drive leads us to a place of being divided and ultimately a self-rejection. Okay, number six. Competition magnifies our mistrust of others. Competition magnifies our mistrust of others. There's a great story in Luke chapter 10 of Jesus tells of the uh, Good Samaritan. And uh, there's a, a man who was beat up and left for dead on the side of the road. And as the story goes, that there's a, a Levite and a priest who go, and rather than going and offer compassion and care for this person, because this person's other, this person's different, there's no trust between uh, Jews and Samaritans at this time. Um, and there's a mistrust of what's going to happen if I actually step in and engage the priest and the Levite walk to the other side. They were actually doing what they should do because uh, they would become ritually impure. And so uh, for them, but there was this sense of lack of trust of, I'm actually called to something greater in this moment. And I can't trust the greater thing that God might be calling me to because all I can see, though, is the mistrust of actually uh, what might happen in this moment. And so I think competition magnifies our mistrust of, of, of others. Uh, number, and then number seven, competition magnifies our sense of comparison. Competition magnifies our sense of comparison. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a story of the prodigal son. And if uh, you remember the story, the young son who has wasted his inheritance comes back. Uh, and the older son who's remained faithful, who hasn't asked for his father's inheritance, which is basically like saying, Dad, you're dead to me. Uh, he stays there, and the older son has a really hard time of welcoming back the younger son. I mean, I think it's actually very honest of the older son, because I would have a really hard time, too, if you're like, man, I've, I've stayed the course, Dad. I've like, been faithful to you, and now the son who's rich, who wrote you off, who said basically you're dead to me, is coming back. 
Dad, how can you trust him? He might just be looking for more. You know, he's greedy or something. Um, but what's interesting there is the way in which the, narr- the, uh, the text talks about his thinking. And his thinking is, I have done all this stuff for you, Dad. I have remained faithful to you. I've served you. And now this son of yours, he doesn't even call him his brother, this son of yours comes back and you receive him. His whole perspective is on himself and what he has done. And he is not able to then receive his, his brother back because all he's caught up in is the comparison between what he has done, how he has lived life, versus what his brother has done. And isn't that true, right? Either siblings and, or in families, we sometimes we get so caught up in the way we've lived life and we think we've done it right that when somebody else wants to kind of come back into a relationship with us, it's very hard to extend forgiveness and grace because we get so caught up in comparison. And that plays itself out in other ways as well. But to me, this is one of the ways in which uh, we see it most profoundly in the story. Okay, so those are top seven things about, in my mind, this force of competition when it's placed before connection with others leaves us divided and rejected. The good news, though, because we are people of hope, the good news, though, is that when we, I think, order rightly connection with others before competition, that we find unity and acceptance. And by the way, just in case I haven't made this clear, I was a college athlete. I love competing, right? Two weeks ago, we were on the pickleball court at our staff retreat. Debbie and I were competing like crazy against one another. She's way better than me at pickleball. Uh, But the point is, but there was never this sense of like, um, oh my gosh, I don't feel valued now, you know, because we had this sense, we're on the same team, we're on the same staff, but we're going to have fun and compete hard against each other on the pickleball court. Ron's also a really good pickleball player too. Um, Yeah. We'll see how that plays out in your marriage coming up here in May. Yeah. But yeah, congratulations, you guys. That's awesome. But yeah, so I, I love to be, but again, the point is about it's how it's ordered, how we order this. So let's dive into what I think are seven things, uh, seven things about connection I think are important and what it does for us, okay? So number one, connection magnifies, uh, mag- magnifies commonalities and leads to unity. Connection magnifies commonalities and leads to unity. What well, we heard Nigel read in our passage out of Romans chapter 12 in verse 5, it says that we are uniquely gifted, but we are of one body. So it's highlighting our individuality and our giftedness, but it's also it's stressing the point that we are of one body in Christ. That's the reality, our commonality. In that study I shared about the Manchester United fans, the, what was fascinating about this study is that they did one more experiment, and they said, okay, Let's have the Manchester United fans now write down everything they love about soccer. Not about their team, Manchester United, but what do they love about soccer? And let's do the exact same experiment. So, exact same scenario, guess how many people went to then help the person who was wearing their their team's jersey, Manchester United? 80%. It actually dropped. Guess how many people went and helped the person who was wearing the Liverpool, their their arch rivals? 70% of people. 40% 40% increase when they just shifted the control of the experiment. They shifted the people from writing about what they had different to what they had in common. And they saw that increase in behavior of offering compassion. Isn't that fascinating? And isn't that true in our life when we focus, again, on what we have in common and what we actually share with one another? We feel a sense of, un- of, of unity and bonding with each other versus we stress what we have different. And I think as people of God, we always come back to that reality. Yes, we are uniquely gifted and we have talents and share, but we are of one body in Christ. 
I want to, to me, a vision for our church in the future is to continue to stress the unity of each other more than anything else. The unity, the doctrine of the unity of, of the church is so important. I think we've, we've often lost that in our Christendom, you know, stressing all the ways we're different from each other. But to man, the, the unity of the body is so key, uh, so key. And, it, and to me, when we do that well, uh, we feel at home and we find flourishing, enjoying relationships. Okay, um, number two, connection magnifies humility and the common good. Connection magnifies humility and the common good. Romans 12, 3, the very first verse in the passage that Nigel read for us, it said, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to, right? But think of yourselves soberly with right, a sound mind. And isn't it true we're in a relationship with, one another, with each other and somebody has that sense of arrogance about them, pride that's elevated? It's really hard to be in an authentic, caring, enjoying relationship with that person. You know, what we see in the book of 1 Corinthians is full of people who are kind of on their high horse for the gifts that they have. And Paul is constantly at this community of saying, no, 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 you are elevating yourself above the rest. We're not saying to, to lose your uniqueness and, and your giftedness, but as don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Don't be stratified the way like the Roman culture would stratify people. You're in Christ together and you're unified that is the reality of our new social order as followers of Jesus. So live into that. So he stresses the importance of humility uh, for connection. And then lastly, the, uh, the way that connection magnifies the common good. So when Jesus' response to uh, James and John in Matthew chapter 20, when they asked if they could sit the right hand and the left hand, and they elevated themselves above the other ten, his response then was, you guys... When you come and follow me, when you take up the cross and you are defined by, by me as Jesus, I have come not to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. See, the common good is the fact of the, how others benefit from our life. Yes, that includes our own life is full, but ultimately as a follower of Jesus, our life is marked by the common good, the way that we share with each other the life of Christ, not just for our sake, but for the sake of others. And we are defined by the way in which we extend ourselves and share with the world. All right, number three, connection magnifies an abundance mindset. Connection magnifies an abundance mindset. In Romans 12, 3 and 6, as we heard, it, it said twice, God gives to us. God gives us the grace. God gives us these gifts. God is the one who's abundantly pouring out to us. And it shifts our perspective from a scarcity to abundance. That God is the God of abundance. What's interesting in the, in the story of the fall of Adam and Eve, when you read that story closely, once they, they choose something, um, they choose wrongly, and they're separated from God, they said, it says that they sow fig, tree, fig leaves, right, uh, to cover themselves because they're naked. What's interesting is when God finds this out and he calls this out, God actually provides for them clothes to wear, but better clothes. He provides them like more full clothes. He provides them like animal skins that cover them. And I think that is so interesting. It gives us a little insight into God's abundance. Even in like our disobedience, God meets us more than we deserve. He like provides something even greater than, than we even think for ourselves. And we see this play over and over that God continually lavishes us with gifts and with uh, grace and all the things in our life that we don't deserve, but he meets us in ways that we can't even imagine. He is an, a God of abundance. 
That's why we can be people of hope, because we know he'll provide for us. Just like he provided for the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years, right? He continually provides for us. Okay. Uh, oh, also, I wanted to point out um, about how connection magnifies our abundant mindset. Um, and Henry Nouwen, in, in The Life of the Beloved, he says that uh, this mindset of, of our spiritual life is most full when we're able to claim the reality that we are the beloved of God. When we can live into that sense of, I am God's beloved, I'm full, I'm made in the image of God, and this is who I am. Now, we're not operating from the place of scarcity or the place of lacking something, but we can then extend out to others. And when he talks about the importance of prayer, the importance of prayer and solitude, of of communing with God, to getting to that place of, of reminding ourselves of who we are in Christ. And so I think that's something that's an important place to practice. If you find yourself struggling with your identity of Jesus and feeling full in the life of the Spirit, make sure you press into times of prayer and in solitude with the Lord to be reminded that you are his beloved. Okay, number four. Uh, Connection magnifies acceptance of the other. Connection magnifies acceptance of the other. So rather than, again, competition driving fear, uh, connection magnifies our acceptance of the other. Uh, this month is Black History Month, and I think about one of my favorite heroes, Jackie Robinson, who was the first uh, baseball player to break the color barrier. I'm a huge baseball fan. Uh, go Dodgers, which is another why I love Jackie Robinson. Um, and he's a UCLA grad, close by, and a community college grad as well, Pasadena City College, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I went to El Camino for a year, so I played football there. El go. Uh, Jackie Robinson's story is amazing. I mean, he thinks about, again, the connection, the, the love that he had for baseball and the competing, right? He shared that with his teammates. There could, I mean, there was so much fear that he had, right? He, stepping into environments where he, with racial slurs and epithets, he knew he was stepping into those environments. But he did so because there was this deeper connection with baseball and then that, the acceptance that he had with his teammates, and that drove to something so beautiful in our world. So when that connection is first, that provides security for us. When we feel connected to those around us, our teammates, our family, our friends, when we know we're accepted and we're loved, now we can step out and drive and go and compete. But if we don't have that deep sense of connection and belonging, it just leaves us insecure and, um, and detached and ultimately rejected. But when we can find that place of deep connection, of knowing who we are, we can, we can go out and uh, strive for something great in the world. Okay, number five. Connection magnifies our reliance on God. Connection magnifies our reliance on God. Uh, Romans 12, 3 and 6, in our passage, we heard about God's grace. Twice it says, God's grace. grace God's grace underpins, I think, everything. God's economy is a graceful economy. It functions on his lavish grace for us. Uh, we don't deserve it, but yet he gives it to us. Uh, you know, the New Testament talks about when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, even when we were away from God, he pursued us. His grace is just there for us to embrace, to welcome back, like the, the, the father and the prodigal son, just welcoming back his youngest son into his home. Uh, and the Israelite story I shared earlier about in Exodus, God's grace uh, poured out on them. And so we can then be, we can rely on God because we know he's a faithful God. He's a God that provides for us. So in that story, 
they wanted the, the meat by their, their um, pots and the bread that says. And God gave them meat and bread, which is interesting. I love that story. He gave them meat and bread, but he, he gave them what they needed, not what they could just hold on to, right? It's, and in fact, in the story of the Israelites in the Exodus narrative, if they were to hold on to any more of the manna from heaven or the quail, it would rot. It would turn away. And so there's something profound here about when we live our life in dependence upon God's faithfulness. Our connection with him, right, drives that greater fulfillment of life versus when we turn to competition and trying to take what we have for ourselves. It drives division and an an unhealthy connection, I believe, with God. And so connection magnifies our reliance on God. All right, number six, connection magnifies our trust of others. Connection magnifies our trust of others. Romans 12, 5 says we are one body, individually belonging to each other. What a beautiful thing that we can trust one another because we are of the same family, that we have the same common uh, identity as followers of Jesus. We belong to each other. Yes, we are individually gifted, but we belong to God. In the Good Samaritan story, Uh, It says that the Samaritan was the one willing to step across the road and to offer his life uh, for this person who was beat up. Uh, The text said he was moved with compassion to offer his life, right, in in friendship as as well as provision, providing for the needs of this wounded person. And so when we have that sense of connection with God and our sense of connection of who we are, we can then step into even places of fear, Places of we don't know how things are going to go. And we can offer our very life to others because we can trust the one who we are connected to ultimately. All right, our last point, number seven. Connection magnifies our sense of gratitude. Connection magnifies our sense of gratitude. If you remember the prodigal son story, when the youngest son, it says, came to his senses, he said, maybe my father will take me in as a hired hand. He will take me as a hired hand. It's like this sense of gratitude. I just need to be back to my father. I'm so grateful that my father could just provide for me. I just want to go back there. So he goes back to his dad and says, Dad, I have sinned against you and against heaven. Take me back as your son. I'm just grateful for what you can give to me. Provide that for me. Uh, And, of course, his father says, you're my son, right? Uh, You're not a hired hand. Come back to what you want. But that sense of gratitude that sustains us as people, it sustains our mindset of abundance. Uh, Recently, I've been uh, having a daily practice with the five-minute journal. If anyone has done the five-minute journal, it's a really simple practice. But just every day you start your morning with writing down things you're grateful for. And it's amazing how it shifts my perspective often coming into the office and either having little sleep or, uh, you know, maybe doubting my own abilities and, and things in my own life. And I sit there and I write down, God, thank you for my friend. Uh, God, thank you for uh, Sterling, you know. Thank you for the cold weather. Just little things that can just shift my perspective to a grateful heart. And now from that grateful heart, I step out into the day. And so we see here that gratitude magnifies, or that connection, though, magnifies gratitude. And it draws us together in a place of being united and accepted. As the team comes back up and leads us in worship, and we're going to go to the, the table, right? The uh, thanks table of the Eucharist or the Thanksgiving meal, the communion table. Uh, that's a place where we can find our greatest connection, our connection with the life source 
uh, who is Jesus, who gave himself for us, gave himself, has broken his body, shed his blood for us so that we could be made whole. And I pray as we, as we take that bread and, and dip it in the juice, we're reminded of our unity with God, our unity with each other, and that we are God's beloved sons and daughters. And from that place, that place of security, that place of wholeness, now we can step out and connect with each other. And so I pray that we would be a church that is known for that, a church that is rooted in God's love for us, and a church that risks a lot relationally to enjoy people in a divided world. Let's pray. God, thank you that... uh, Thank you that we can rest in our identity as your sons and daughters. God, we don't have to prove anything to you. You simply ask us to come and to receive. God, you give your life freely to us, and so we receive it. And God, in doing so, we are drawn into the great connection of your life. And Father, I pray out of that same place of wonderful affirming beauty that we would then extend our own life in relational health to others, even those who are different than us. And in doing so, God, may people taste and see that you are good. In Jesus' name, amen. So the tables are open, and as you're led, go and take and